Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34. Matthew 8, verses 18 through 34. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, these are the verses we're going to begin to unpack tonight. Um, we're not going to cover them all, but there's plenty here for us for tonight. We're probably going to get as far as verse, my blind eyes here, verse 27 is probably about as far as we'll get. We'll see how we go. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 18 is how Jesus wasn't seeking to please large crowds. Look at what it says. It says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Isn't that interesting? Uh, he was far more concerned with his father's plan for him than amassing large crowds of followers. We're going to talk about this a little bit because we've been taught that the church should be focusing on getting big crowds and drawing big crowds. How can we get bigger crowds? Uh, what can we do to get more people? But Jesus, as you'll notice, when there were crowds, he would move on. It's kind of interesting. Go with me to Mark chapter 1. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. Look what he says here. Remember from our study earlier in this study uh, a few months ago. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so what I want to talk about for a little bit tonight is the fact that we get... 
wrongly motivated when we try to, how can we get more people? How can we get bigger crowds? I'm going to show you from Scripture that whether or not people respond to what we share is totally between them and God. That's the work of God. Our job is just to share it when He tells us to and how He tells us to. We're not to try to get more and more people to come. A lot of churches actually stop being obedient to God because they're more interested in keeping everybody happy and having the large numbers. And when you get the large numbers, all of a sudden... Uh, you spend more time trying to please the masses than you are following God. I know that when I came here as pastor uh, back in 2000, uh, things were in such a state that I would come in and I would say, new sheriff in town, and here's what God is telling us to do. And people were like, that sounds great, whatever. That sounds great. That's great, because they knew they were in trouble. But as the church grew, I started to realize all of a sudden people were like, well, why do you keep changing things? They were okay with the change because they knew they were about to die. But as you know, God keeps saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And he's continually leading us to follow him. But once we got a big crowd and they felt like the budget was being met and the building had been fixed up, there was a subconscious attitude of, why would you mess with it now? It's good. But if God said, here, I got a new thing to do and another thing to do, people get resistant. And I started to notice the struggle within myself of trying to keep people happy versus being obedient to God. Go to Acts chapter 2. We're going to do a little study through the book of Acts real quick about church growth and numbers. In Acts chapter 2, look at verses 40 and 41. This is at the end of Peter's sermon there at Pentecost. And it says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 people believed and were baptized. Go over to chapter 4 and look at verses 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So now the number's grown from 3,000 to 5,000. Pretty cool, right? Go to Acts chapter 5. Look at verses 12 through 16. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, so that even they, as they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them in cots and mats as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and the afflicted with unclean spirits, and they are all healed. So here we see the scripture says, even though at what just happened prior to this is Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God for lying. And some people were afraid to join them, but yet at the same time, more and more people were getting saved. More and more people were getting baptized. Go to uh, Acts chapter 6. Look at 1 through 7. It says, Now in those, these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, on, serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we'll appoint this to this do, them to this duty. 
But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I don't know if y'all are doing the math yet, but we're, we're getting a lot. The numbers are growing. Go to Acts chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. Stephen has just been stoned, put to, put to death, and it says Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Isn't that interesting? Peter preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 people are added to the church. And then next chapter, the number grows to 5,000. And as we saw in chapter 5 and 6 and 7, as they, they just more and more people kept coming. Well, well, we start to notice in chapter 6, though, as the numbers started to increase, what else started to happen? The grumbling amongst each other started to happen. And they started getting more worried about their comfort and how the daily distribution of the food of the widows is going to be taken care of. And all of a sudden, something starts to happen when we start to get more focused on us and numbers and keeping us all comfortable. We've been taught in our churches, and you've heard me talk about this over and over, to measure our results. What was the budget? I mean, what's the giving? Have we met budget? And uh, what was the attendance? And are we growing? And are we shrinking? We've been taught to measure these results. But interestingly enough, when the crowds are coming around Jesus, he would always say, let's go somewhere else. Yet at the same time, we also saw that as the church grew there in Jerusalem and thousands more were added, once the persecution broke out, what happened? What did God do to the church? Does anybody know why he did that? Yes, to witness. Hadn't he already told them right after his resurrection, go into all the world and make disciples? But we have a tendency to want to stay and be comfortable. And God always keeps up turning over the apple cart. If you remember back in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. You get to chapter 11 and they said, we don't want to be scattered across the whole earth. Let's make a name for ourselves. And they began to build the Tower of Babel there in Babylon. And what did God do? He scattered them. Folks, I'm not saying that big churches are bad. Please don't hear that. But to seek to become a big church or to seek the numbers or to count, focus on the numbers will take you away from walking with Jesus. It's going to make you jealous if you compare your numbers against others. Do you realize a lot of churches struggle with that? What are they doing? Because they're getting so many more people than we are. Maybe we can do what they're doing. Well, they have a band. All right, maybe if we get a band. Or they're doing this with their children's ministry. Maybe if we just do that. Or I heard someone talk earlier about if we build it, they'll come mentality. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Look at verses 6 through 9. 
As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. What started Saul being a little bit jealous of David? The fact that they were attributing to him more numbers than he had. Folks, let me warn you about seeking to get more and more. How can we get more? How can we get more? That sounds right. It sounds spiritual, but it's not. We're to be faithful to do what he's asked us to do, and the results are up to him. And we need to believe that and have that really sink into our hearts. But let me just tell you, having been in ministry for a long, long time, that's going to be a hard thing to break from the people. It's a mentality that is so ingrained in us because a lot of our preachers have been telling us to focus on that. How many of you remember being told on Pack-a-Pew Sunday? Does anybody ever remember a Pack-a-Pew Sunday? You remember, some of you remember that? You know, there will be a prize for whoever can fill their pew. Or if we get so many people here next Sunday, the pastor will kiss a pig. Seriously, on the mouth, these things happen. All these different things. We have been taught to focus on numbers and getting the place full. Pastors greet each other and they see each other in, in, at conferences or whatever. And they'll say, how many of you guys running? What's your attendance? And I have for all the years that I've been in this traveling ministry of going around and helping churches and working with pastors and churches around the country, intentionally never asked that question of any pastor. Because that's not really what I care about. I don't care about how many people are there. I want to know about the spiritual health of the body. That's far more important to God. Plus, God has not designed each of us to compete for the most results but to be simply faithful with what he's called us to do. Go back to Matthew chapter 25. Now, I know you agree with everything I'm saying, but I'm telling you right now, I can promise you, in the back of your mind, you still are going to be focusing on how many people showed up last week on Memorial Day. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 23. Jesus says, For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, we're not going to get into the third servant because that's not the focus of where we're going tonight. But can anybody notice something about what Jesus said to the guy who had the five and the one who had the two? Do you notice the exact same response word for word? One had been given God, by God responsibility 
that was greater than the other, each according to their ability. But the one who had the five that turned into ten was told the exact same commendation as the one who had the two that turned into four. And folks, let me tell you, when you focus on numbers and you focus on trying to get more numbers, it's going to not only make you jealous of other people, it's going to make you try to do things that you're not supposed to be doing. Are you doing what he's asked you to do? Go to Romans chapter 12. Look at verses 3 through 8. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. For by, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many parts, and the parts don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually parts one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Having gifts different that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if it's prophecy, listen closely, in proportion to our faith. And then it lists all some of the other gifts. But let me ask you a question. What does it mean when it says each of us according to the measure of faith that God has assigned? And what does it say in proportion to our faith? Does anybody have any idea what it's saying there? What do you think it's saying? That not to think of ourselves more highly, but each with sober judgment, each in proportion to the measure of faith that we've been assigned. And if you've been given the gift of prophecy, do it in proportion to your faith. What do you think that means? All right, I'll be right back to you. Go ahead. Faith is definitely the only way we can please God. But what do you think it means when it uses the word in proportion? You were close, Mark. Go ahead. What, what did you say? Stay in the confines of what God's given you. Let me give you an example. There's all different kinds of preachers are, out there, aren't there? Some of them are able to go stand in front of a big audience of 30,000, 40,000 people, and by God's gift, they are able to speak to that whole group, and everybody in that room feels like they've connected with that guy. What a gift that that is, that that person can do that. Can every preacher do that? Are there some preachers that would go in there and kill the room? But you know, some of those preachers that would go in there and kill the big room are some of the best in the smaller settings. I know of a man who is with the Lord because he died of cancer, but he was one of the most gifted that I ever saw who could work with brand new believers. I actually sat in on a class that he taught one time as I was working with his church, and he took brand new believers that didn't even know the word God, and he actually taught them the basics of the faith, and I sat there, and I was just in awe. That would have killed me, by the way, to try to teach brand new believers the basics. I've been wired by God to take people that know the word deeper. But he was so gifted in that area, wasn't the best preacher when it came to Sunday morning for the big group. And we have a tendency to think that everybody's supposed to be as good as everybody else. No, whatever your gift is, you do it in proportion to the Measure of faith that you've been given, according to the gift that you've been given, according to the ability that God's given you. And don't compare yourself and stop trying to get more numbers than those. Uh, you know, we, we keep measuring. How, what are the, what's the attendance? Have you noticed we've never counted on Tuesday nights? Have you notice we don't take attendance? I couldn't tell you how many people come. I can take a rough guess, but I don't know. But that's not the issue. The question is, are they growing in the knowledge of the word? That's the most important thing. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 13. 
I was just reminded of a text that I got from a lady in Chicago this morning as you're turning to Isaiah 6. Let me read to you a text that I got from a lady in Chicago this morning. She, she's really getting hungry about the word. She wrote, why do we always number everything like how many people are in church? David got in trouble for it. I go, we shouldn't. But we like to measure how, quote unquote, we are doing. She writes back, that's dangerous. I said, yup. Isn't that interesting? How this lady just this morning said, why do we do that? It doesn't seem right. In Isaiah chapter 6, look at verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost, from a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go from us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say this to the people. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isn't that interesting? We've never heard the preacher preach on that section, have we? we he always stops on, here am I, send me. And then we talk about going to work for Jesus, being willing to, here am I, send me. But nobody ever keeps preaching when God tells Isaiah after this amazing experience in the throne room of God and having the coal touch his lips and be, have his sins atoned for, nobody preaches on the fact that God told Isaiah, oh, I got a job for you. I'm going to have you go preach for the rest of your life and they're not going to listen. Oh, did people listen to Isaiah? Yes. Hopefully you have. I have. When Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant and how he's crushed for our iniquities and bruised for our transgressions. Oh, God's used Isaiah mightily. Many have come to faith because of Isaiah. The Ethiopian eunuch came to faith because of Isaiah, correct? But did it happen in Isaiah's lifetime? No. In his lifetime, he dealt with a people that had already shut their hearts off to God and Isaiah was to preach to them. Are you willing to do what God's asked you to do, even if there will be no results in your lifetime? Are you willing to pray for that grandchild to come to know Jesus, even though you may never see it? Are you willing to work in proportion to the measure of faith that you've been given to be believing that God's going to do what he said he would do in his word? And whether I see it or not, it doesn't matter. I need to be faithful to what he's asked me to do. But because we've been taught to measure results and try to amass the crowds, it's caused us to walk out of the abiding relationship, stop trusting in the Lord, come up with compromised ways of trying to draw crowds. And folks, as you all know, and I know full well, cancer grows fast, but it doesn't mean it's healthy. And we've been taught to, and we talk about how oh, that church is growing and how many people are. God's not as interested in that as we thought. Please don't hear me say that that kind of stuff is wrong. But there's a lot of danger. 
Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4, listen to what Paul says to Timothy in verses 1 through 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. That's a pretty serious charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul told Timothy, you be faithful to preach the word of God. Be patient. Speak it for what it is. Leave the results to God. Oh, and don't be surprised. People are going to run to the preachers that tell them what they want to hear, not the people that are teaching the truth. I don't have time to take you through what the scripture says about how bad things are going to be in the last days. But do we see in the scriptures large masses of people at the end of the church age? No, we see many going down that road that leads to destruction. We see a false Christianity and an apostasy that's going to be happening. There's going to be big numbers of people that claim to be spiritual. But they're not going to be real people that are followed. So I'm going to challenge you. Don't get focused on numbers. Be focused on doing what he's asked you to do. Now, what happens next? Go back to Matthew chapter 8. What happens next in our text for tonight ties into what we've just studied. You see, if Jesus was all about amassing numbers of followers, he would have responded very differently to these two men. Look at what happens again. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, another of the disciples, isn't that interesting? Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, again, if Jesus was about amassing numbers, that's not how you respond to people when they say they want to be a part of your crowd. You're actually going to see when we won't get there tonight when he deals with the demon possessed men. And one of the demon possessed men wanted to get in the boat afterwards and go with him. And he says, no, I want you to go back home. So the first guy comes up. Who's the first guy that comes and speaks to him? It's important that you know who he is. He's a scribe. By the way, were the scribes friends with Jesus? Oh, no. Jesus had been bashing the Pharisees and the scribes. But the scribe in front of this crowd of people says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. He actually in front of all the other scribes said, I want to go with you. By the way, do you think that's going to make him popular with the rest of the scribes? And Jesus, knowing this, says to him, "Um, don't think following me will be comfortable. The foxes have holes, the birds birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. By the way, did Jesus ever own any property while he was on the earth? He owned it all, but 
in our measurements, no. He lived, he was the first couch surfer. Millennials know what I'm talking about. You older folks don't know what I'm talking about. Millennials today couch surf. They go stay at their pen, friend's pad for a season and then somebody else's and they couch surf. Jesus has been doing that long before that we started doing it in this time and day. At the same time, when he died, what did he have? One piece of clothing. Did he lack anything? No. He lived to obedience to the Father, and the Father provided for him everything he needed. But he wasn't about amassing things on this earth. And he said to this guy, if you want to follow me, it's not going to be comfortable. Yet we try to design Christianity where we can follow God and have things be comfortable. Now, i got to be honest with you. I'm glad that there's air conditioning here in the room tonight. Some of you are actually a little chilly. It wasn't that way three weeks ago in here. And we did a funeral service, and it was hot, and everybody was sweating. And how many of us would not come if you knew there wasn't going to be AC? I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'll just let the Lord talk to you there. We've gotten a little bit soft. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 20 and 21. In Matthew 13, verse 20, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately, he falls away. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is all about, by the way. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ, or some had and some hadn't. They had made professions of their faith in Christ, but now because they had professed their faith in Christ, they started to experience hardship. They weren't welcomed in the synagogues anymore, and their families were disowning them, and some of them lost their jobs, and some of them lost their houses. Read the book of Hebrews. It lists all that stuff. And they were thinking about going back to Judaism because it was hard. And how many people over the years said, I believe in Jesus because they thought that being saved meant that everything was going to be wonderful and great in this life, and then when People die and, and you don't get healed and things we've been dealing with over the last couple of weeks in our study happened. How many people have walked away because God wasn't there for me? Remember Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me, Jesus says. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 52 through 67. And I'm just going to tell you now, I want you to stay awake because I can't wait to get to the section of what I've been waiting all night to show you. God showed me something in the, the next section of our study for tonight that I have never, ever seen in my many years of studying that passage. And I can't wait to show it to you. But we've got to finish this part first. Go to John chapter 6, starting in verse 52. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's just said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. He said, How can you, this man give us his, his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the blood of man and, and, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and then I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. In other words, don't think I'm talking about my physical, physical flesh that you have to eat. The flesh doesn't help you do anything. It's, it's the spirit is what I'm talking about. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't say, hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> We're not going to meet budget if you guys leave. Um, come back. How many of a pastor today is manipulated by certain people in the church who are the big givers? I actually heard just in this last month one pastor talking about a certain church that he's working with. And he was told when he came as the new pastor, don't mess with these people or we'll have to shut the doors. They keep the church alive financially. That's the mindset that we've been taught. Keep them happy. Tickle their ears. I want to be a part of what God's doing. And if there's only a small group that follow, that'd be great. Because I'd rather deal with real Christians than have to spend a lot of time trying to keep non-Christians happy. Folks, get your eyes off the numbers. Get your eyes off the numbers and get back to walking with Jesus and just leave the results to him. Jesus was telling the scribe to count the cost of following Jesus, and so should we. I'm not going to have you turn there. If you want to go later on and look at Luke chapter 15 and verses 25 through 33, uh, you remember where he says you need to count the cost before you follow him. And he says, if you're not willing to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him, you can't be his disciple. Let me show you something, though, that you might not know. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and look at verse 12. This is one of those passages that I'm pretty sure no one has ever heard a sermon on. If you have, that's a good preacher. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I'm going to say something to you that may surprise you. You think that the persecution is going to come from the world, and it will. But in the day in which we live now, do you know where most of your persecution is going to come from as a Christian if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? From within what we call the church. 
If you truly want to live according to the Word of God and to be obedient to what He says and to be a person that says, no, we're going to wait and we're going to pray and we're going to see what God has in mind and we're going to do things that look stupid to the world because when He speaks, we're going to trust Him and we're going to do what He says, I promise you, you will be persecuted by the church. 1 Peter, you're quoting 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, where it's time for judgment to begin in the household of faith. God is building his church. He, Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So, folks, let me just say something to you. Stop trying to fix the church. Stop trying to help the church. Jesus said, I'll build the church and the gates of hell won't mess with it. Because when we try to fix the church and build the church and how can we get more young people and how can we get more certain groups or how can we do this or how can we do that? We are trying to do something that God says, that's my job. All I've asked you to do was to live it in a proportion to what I've given you. Go do that and leave the results to me. Be faithful to believe that I will do. And in some places you'll see numbers and other places you won't. And in some places those numbers will all of a sudden disappear after a period of time. And that has nothing to do with how good Peter did at Pentecost when all the churches Jerusalem was scattered. Now, I got to be honest with you, I've had to wrestle with this issue. Because by God's grace and God's design, every church that I've pastored in my life of ministry has grown multiplied. It just exploded. When I was in Chicago, they went from 50 people of a church that about to die, went from 50 to 400 in three and a half years, and things were going and blowing. But then God moved me from there to come down here to First Baptist in the Atlantic, and that church went in numbers. And then it, for those of you that were here when I was pastor at First Indian Atlantic, God did an amazing thing and people came and people were getting saved and the church was growing and it was a healthy growth and things were really going on. But then he moved me and told me to go into this traveling ministry and I've been obedient. And again, the numbers went way down. And Satan began to work on me. And he said, if what you did was real, it would have lasted I started to really question my quote-unquote effectiveness. Of course, I'm looking at me. I called an old pastor friend of mine. Some of you know him. His name is Jack Green. Called him up. He said, how you doing, Padna? I said, Jack, I'm not doing too good. He said, both of the churches I pastored after I left, they kind of fell apart. He goes, oh, so you're better than Paul, huh? I said, what? He goes, if you read your Bible, Jim, Paul would start churches, and then he'd have to write back to him and say, stop getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, stop sleeping with your father's wife, stop doing this, stop fighting over this. He said, people are people. Did you do what God asked you to do while you were there? Yes, sir, I did to the best of my ability, I think. He said, then that's all God's going to hold you accountable for. Folks, let me just tell you, did the people that were truly saved at Pentecost continue on in the faith, even though they didn't stay in Jerusalem? then whether they stay in the local church congregation or still continue to follow the Lord in other places, you did what God asked you to do. We've been taught that everybody's supposed to hear. People are leaving. We're focusing on the wrong things. If they're leaving and walking away from the Lord, the Bible says they never were. And if they leave and go somewhere else where God's called them in ministry, not a bad thing. Again, this is going to take years of unlearning. My prayer is it starts with you. Jesus saw the masses and the crowds and he said, let's go to the other side of the lake. 
Then as you saw in our passage, this other man, one of his disciples wanted to follow Jesus as soon as he got his inheritance money. That's, by the way, what he says. A lot of people have read that and they go, this man's dad just died and he won't, Jesus won't even let him do the funeral. That's not what's going on here. If you understand the background and what was happening, the man said to Jesus, I will follow you as soon as I get my inheritance. In other words, his dad was still alive. And as soon as my dad dies and I get my inheritance, I'll come and follow you. How many people have known that the Spirit of God was calling them to follow Jesus and that they were to trust Christ as their Savior, but they were raised in a denomination that taught that you were already saved because you were baptized as a baby. And then as an adult, they realized they weren't saved because they were baptized as a baby. And as Jesus was opening their eyes to this truth, they won't follow Jesus because it'll hurt mama's heart that I say that that wasn't real and I start to follow him. Folks, Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. And you follow me. Are you willing to follow him even if that makes mom and dad unhappy? We go looking for rich church members and want to make sure they're comfortable. This guy says, as soon as I get my inheritance, I'll follow you. I don't know how many people over the years have told me, Pastor, if you'll just pray with me to win the lottery, I promise to write a big check. I'm serious. You'd be amazed how many people have said it. You know, and I say, Becky, that's no way to look at things, you know, so. Yeah. I only joke because you're cute and I love you. Jesus challenges him to be willing to follow him, even if that means losing his inheritance. Whoa. Now I've gone from preaching to meddling. Are you willing to follow Jesus, even if that means you lose your inheritance? I've dealt with couples who wouldn't get married, but they live together in sin. But the reason they're not getting married is, is because if they get married, then they lose the pension from the previous marriage and all this other kind of stuff. And I say to them, either you follow Jesus or you take care of yourself financially, you choose. What are you still trying to hold on to as you follow Jesus? Your reputation? Your control? Your plans, your sin. So we can sit here and do a study and look at this guy who wouldn't be willing to give up his inheritance. What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to that he's asking you to let go of as you follow him? Go back to Matthew chapter 8. Look at verses 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, remember they're going across the lake, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, there's a ton here, folks. But this is one of the greatest examples of Jesus being 100% man and 100% God. Do you know why? Because Jesus was tired from all the journey and dealing with the crowds, which, by the way, my wife will tell you, at the end of a week of me preaching at a church and doing a week of revival, a Bible conference, I have a situation that happens to me. At the very end, I crash. It's, it's physical, it's real, and I literally have a crash that night or the next day where 
from being on, if you will, and I don't mean on in the sense of phony, when I'm done being used to the Lord, it's exhausting. And Jesus was very, very tired. But does God sleep? No. Actually, I want you to go with me to Psalm 121, to the place in the Scripture where the Scripture clearly says that God doesn't sleep, because you're about to see something, I hope, tonight, that I've never seen before. In all my years of preaching on this passage, God opened my eyes to something from the fact that God doesn't sleep that connects with this passage that I can't wait to show it to you. But to begin to get you there, I've got to take you back to Psalm 121 and look at the whole, the whole psalm there. It's just a short psalm, eight verses. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus was 100% man in that he was tired and he needed to sleep and he can sleep. But God doesn't sleep. Man does. Yet at the same time, when he gets up and he speaks to the wind and the waves, what happened? They obeyed. They literally said, yes, sir. I mean, if you studied in the Greek, if any of you have ever been out on the, on the on a, on a water in a storm and the storm starts to die down, the waves eventually, in the Greek, it literally reads like it became like glass. It was almost like the wind went, Whoop, and the water went, Whoop. so much so the disciples said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The, came, the disciples came and woke Jesus as the storm grew worse. Their concern was that they would die and that he wasn't concerned. That, that's what they, they were concerned that they were going to die and that he wasn't concerned about it. Go back with me to Mark chapter 4. Let me show you Mark's account of this. We're going to look at Mark's and Luke's account because we get little extra tidbits from each of them. In Mark's account in Mark chapter 4, look at verses 35 through 41. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35, it says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And there were other boats with him. So we now know there's more than one boat. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Here, look how they're worded it here. You don't care? You don't care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this then that even, though, even the wind and the seas obey him? They thought he wasn't concerned. Luke's account adds something even more. It's been hinted at in Matthew and Mark. But go with me to Luke chapter 8 real quick and look at verses 22 through 25. In Luke 8 verse 22 it says, one day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water. Matthew said they were swamped. Mark brought up that the water was splashing into the boat. But now Luke tells us what was happening in the boat. 
It was filling with water. It was going down. You know the rest of the story. I'm not going to keep reading in Luke's account. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, do something. Let me ask you a question. What did they expect him to do? I mean, because he gets up and he speaks and he says to the wind and the waves, be still. And the wind and the waves were still. And they were like, we didn't expect that. They probably just expected him to help bail. You have to keep in mind, they're not, they're not realizing he's God yet. They don't get it yet. They, they know he's important and they know he's sent from God and the spirit of God's opening their eyes to the truth enough that they're going to follow him, even though it doesn't make a whole lot of sense at times. But they were like, aren't you going to do something? Don't you care? And Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they're like, whoa, we didn't expect him to do that. Here's what I want to show you tonight. As I was studying this, God opened my eyes to something pretty cool. We've always read that Jesus was asleep simply as showing that he was tired. And I'm sure he was. But let me ask you a question. Did Jesus know that once they get in the boat to go across, that that storm was going to come? Of course he did. Remember, there isn't anything that's going to happen next that he doesn't already know. The Bible's very clear about that. And actually, the Bible says that the wind came down the mountain. If you've been there, and I've not, but I've done a little study, and, 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 and they say that the Sea of Galilee is so many thousand feet below sea level, and, 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 and there's mountains, and when the wind blows down through from the mountains down onto the lake, I mean, the storm would get really bad quick. And Jesus, knowing that there's going to be a storm, knowing that it's going to come from the mountains... Tells them to get in the boat and let's go across the lake, knowing full well there's going to be a storm that's going to swamp the boat. And what does he do? Does he take watch? Does he tell the guys, hey, there's going to be a storm. Why don't you all take turns keeping an eye out? Hey, get a bucket ready. We may need it. What does he do? And here's what God opened my eyes to. I think Jesus went to sleep on purpose. To point them to Psalm 121. I went on to a study to find all the places in the Bible where it talks about how God doesn't sleep. I only could find one. I was surprised. I thought, and maybe there are more. I haven't found them. I thought there were lots of places that talk about how God doesn't sleep. They would have been very learned Jews who would have known Psalms, I think. And folks, listen to me. You see this all the way through the scriptures. Jesus keeps pointing them back to the word so that they would believe that he is who the word said. Remember when he rose from the dead and the two men on the road to Emmaus were discouraged and they left. And after hearing of that he had risen and the women had said and the disciples that Peter and John had said and all this. But they were still discouraged and they go walking back. He comes alongside of them. And he keeps them from recognizing that it was him. And the Bible says the whole walk, all he does is remind them of the scriptures. I think Jesus says, let's, guys, let's go across the lake, knowing there's going to be a storm, knowing that it's going to blow down from the mountain. Let's just call them the hills. And what does he do? He intentionally goes 
to sleep. Go back to Psalm 121 and listen to the psalm again now. In Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who did what? Even the wind and the waves obey him. He's not going to let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm says God's got you. I think Jesus intentionally went to sleep so that he could then point them back to Psalm 121. My eyes look under the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Oh yeah, there's a big storm blowing down the hill, but that's not what I'm to fear. I'm to fear the one who made heaven and earth. He doesn't slumber, nor does he sleep. Now, does this mean that we'll never get sick? Does this mean that we'll never die? Is this what this passage is saying? No. But folks, the scripture says, He's got you. Has he not made promises to us as children? These are promises to Israel, but they apply to us as well. Has he not made promises to us? Has he not told us that if we're his, we're more treasured than the sparrows? We're more valuable than the grass of the field, which flowers and looks beautiful? Has he not been telling us all along in our study of Matthew? Look, you're of value. If I died for you when you were my enemy, when you were powerless, how much more will you be saved from my wrath now that you're my child? Folks, it's time that we daily renew our minds in the word of what he said and believe that he's got us. I want to send you out tonight with one last passage, and it's Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Let me ask you a question as you turn there. Does anything happen out of God's control? No. Is anything too hard for him? Do you know his word? Do you know his promises? Look at Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. I don't know specifically what's going, what's going on in your life and what you're going through, but I promise you this much, if you take your eyes off of Jesus and put them on whatever that is, the storm that's in your life, you're going to have a bellyache. If you put them on Jesus, you're going to be fine. And he's going to allow over and over circumstances and situations to happen. Jesus himself said in John chapter 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. In me you'll have peace. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I'm going to say it. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is at hand. And don't be anxious about anything. But when those situations that would make you anxious occur, come up, make your requests known to God. And he'll give you 
the peace that passes understanding in Christ Jesus. Folks, he hasn't promised that you won't have the storms. He's actually going to orchestrate it so that you'll go into them. But when we have storms, our first thoughts are, I've done something wrong, he's mad at me, all that stuff. He wants you to go back to his word. He said, I got you. I got you. You're going to be all right. I don't know about you. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But you're going to need to be reminded tomorrow. Don't think that I get, you got it tonight and you're good for the rest of your life. You need to be reminded tomorrow. And until then, I love you. We'll see you next week in here. Thanks for coming.